want to thank everyone for coming today. Um, do I need to stand at the mic for any reason, or can I wander a little bit? Okay, I can wander at least a little bit when I'm not using my text here. I want to thank all of you for coming, um, or as we text and say, thank you all for coming. I've been in Texas for a couple decades, and my wife, who is the native Texan, says I'll never assimilate because I apparently can't lose the accent. Um, and met a bunch of people I've run into on campus. Say, where's that accent from? You're not from Texas, really, are you? So, um, before getting down to business, um, a couple preliminary things I, I wanted to do. The first is to thank Christendom and Dr. Stanford um, for inviting me here to do this talk, and thank Dr. Stanford for all his hard work. I ran a lecture series for about 10 years at our university where we brought in about four or five speakers a year, and I know how much and appreciate how much work's involved and all the little logistical things you have to worry about. S second thing mm -hmm. I wanted to do is just say how impressed I've been um, by Christendom College and by the student body in my short time here. I, I've been to Christendom a couple times before um, for conferences, but I didn't really get a chance to interact very much with students. And, and last night and today I had a chance to talk to the student body and get sort of a better feel um, for the place, and I just, all kidding aside, I cannot tell you how impressed I am. Impressed by the esprit de corps, the sense of mission, impressed by the sense of community, okay, that you have here. I'm at a big state university, 35,000 people. It is, to say the least, a rather impersonal environment. Uh, Christendom is anything but an impersonal environment. And I'm particularly impressed by what that community emerges out of. The commitment on one hand to the faith, and on the other hand, a commitment to the liberal arts, to liberal learning. Um, one of the things that's impressed me most as I've talked to students here is you might say their intellectual and cultural literacy. They've actually read Aristotle, they've read Plato, they're familiar with the canon of the Western tradition. At my university, a lot of times I encounter seniors, or even graduate students, because I actually do most of my teaching in our MA program, who've never read Plato, who've never read Aristotle, things like that, to see a community united by a commitment to liberal learning, commitment to the great books, it is just so impressive. Final preliminary I wanted to um, take care of um, is just to mention how happy, happy I am to be back um, with my old friend Bill Lucky here. Bill is right, we met in 1976 or thereabouts, might have been 77, but roughly that's the the time period. I was 18 or 19 years old. I was a college freshman. I'm almost sure it was my freshman year. And, and to say the least, I was a little wet behind the ears. I, I already knew at that point I was interested in kind of the great books that I probably wanted to be a political theorist. Um, but running into Bell not only reinforced kind of what I was starting to see as my calling, that it's something I could do, that it's something I should do, but Bill really showed me the way. I was a first-generation college student. No one in my family had been to college, much less graduate school. I, I had no idea what was involved in that, and Bill sort of took me under his wing, showed me the ropes. I, mean, I ended up going to graduate school up at Fordham at Bill's recommendation. I can still remember telling him, you know, I want to go to graduate school, but I have no idea where to go. I have no idea what to do, how you even go about applying for something like that. And he said, it's very easy. You go where I'm going. You go up to Fordham. There's a man there, a priest, Francis Canavan. He knows everyone. He's read everything. 
you go up there, you study with him, spend as much time around him as you possibly can, and you will get a wonderful education. Um, some of the best advice I've ever been given. I'm always appreciative of Bill for that. Um, Bertrand Dejuvenal, one of, an author Bill wrote his doctoral dissertation on, an author I never read until about 10 years ago, but I've been reading him on and off for the past 10 years, been, have been very impressed, said a wise man knows himself to be a debtor. Okay, and I am in debt to Bill Lucky, a debt I'll never um, be able to reply, but I'm very grateful for all that he has done for me in terms of shaping my life and, and whatnot. Um, in any case, um, my topic for today concerns the relevance of Christianity um, to the Western heritage of freedom. Specifically, my argument will be essentially twofold. Uh, first, that Christianity pointed us towards a new and revolutionary vision of man and society, an understanding that changed Western political life in fundamental ways and which laid the ground for the Western tradition of liberty. Secondly, that the history of the past several centuries suggests that modernity's effort, or liberal modernity's effort, to carry forward the quest for freedom set in motion by Christianity on a new and entirely secular basis is in deep trouble. And I'll conclude, um, if I have time, by just briefly um, suggesting, suggesting there are reasons for doubting the sustainability of the project of taming the state in our highly secularized, post-Christian, post-metaphysical, intellectual climate. Now, I said Christianity revolutionized Western political life. I said it laid the groundwork for the Western tradition of liberty. How did it do this? I want to call attention to two fundamental ideas in the Christian tradition. The first of these ideas is what might be called the freedom of the church. Although that phrase would seem to be of medieval origin, the, the idea long predates the Middle Ages. It dates to the earliest days of Christianity. It emerges out of the, out of, um, the distinction between church and state that's fundamental to Christianity. We can see it in the act of the apostles in Peter's insistence, we must obey God and, and not men. With, with the exception of the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men in society, there is perhaps no principle more foundational to Catholic social teaching. Um, as the Second Vatican Council affirms, among the things which concern the good of the church and indeed the welfare of society here on earth, things therefore which are always and everywhere to be kept secure and defended against all injury, this certainly is preeminent, namely that the church should enjoy the full measure of freedom which her care for the salvation of men requires. This freedom is sacred because the only begotten Son endowed the, ch endowed the church with it. He purchased it with his blood. It is so much the property of the church that to act against it is to act against the will of God. The council continues to say that this principle of the freedom of church is nothing less than the fundamental principle. That's its wording, the fundamental principle governing the relationship between church and governments, and the whole civil order. Indeed, Joseph Ratzinger, someone we're undoubtedly all familiar with, has argued that the establishment of this freedom is the first and most basic task of a Christian politics. 
Now, what I want to suggest is that this notion of the freedom of the church has been the charter of a far-reaching transformation in Western political life. To, to appreciate the nature of the transformation, let's go back to classical antiquity. And let's look at the vision of society that prepa- um, prevailed in the ancient Greek polis. Okay? The, the small and intimate society of the polis, as Ernest Barker observed, was something more than a political system. In fact, the polis was state and society in one, without distinction and differentiation. It was a single system of order, simultaneously a church, an ethical society, an economic concern, and a cultural association. It was a sovereign and all-inclusive entity, embracing and regulating human life in all its various dimensions. This vision of social life was characteristic not just of the Greek polis, it was characteristic of classical antiquity in general. The empires of classical antiquity were obviously much larger than the polis, but they shared this all-embracing character. And what I would suggest is that we see here is a vision of society whose most striking characteristic what is its monism? To begin with, the loyalty owed to these orders was in general conceived as an ultimate loyalty from which there could be no appeal to any higher norms. There was no truth beyond the truth of the empire or polis. It alone was the authoritative interpreter of the human person's nature and destiny and the location in which that destiny was lived out, was achieved. At the same time, inasmuch as society was seen as a single homogeneous structure, all groups and associations were absorbed in its all-embracing unity. The, the Greek mind, the classical mind, didn't acknowledge any distinction between religion and politics, church and state, government and society. There was no independent sphere of life beyond the jurisdiction of the polis. Against this background, it becomes apparent why Barker maintained that there was dynamite in the biblical admonition to render unto God what is God's and unto Caesar what is Caesar's. What resulted as, as a, what emerged from what might be called the Christian revolution was a diarchical understanding of society in which the family of mankind was to be organized in two societies, under two laws emanating from two distinct authorities. Pope Gelatius. Two there are, August Emperor Bill Bill Lucky was talking about that earlier today. Uh, Under the impact of this revolution, the state was not only distinguished from the church, but it was relativized, limited, and secularized. The polis or empire now became the state, and was forced to share the stage of social life with a new actor, the church, an actor that claimed a greater dignity than it, and an actor which asserted a freedom vis-a-vis it. Now the political community in the church must be understood as autonomous and independent in their own fields. Now the state, to use Eric Vogelin's terminology, was de-divinized. The state ceases to be the ultimate milieu of human perfection, the authoritative interpreter of man's nature or destiny, the representative of God's will for humanity, 
or the ultimate judge of right and wrong. It loses its responsibility um, for guiding man to its ultimate um, destiny. Okay? So our first kind of new principle here, the freedom of the church. Second new principle, the dignity of the human person. The dignity of the human person. Here again, to grasp the significance of the Christian affirmation of the dignity of the person, it's helpful to look at pre-Christian times. The social orders of classical antiquity had what might be described as a strongly communitarian or even collectivistic character. Individuals were understood to be tools to be employed by the social order for its purposes. As Peter Brown has shown, the great historian, uh, society was understood as the arbiter of the body, the use and very right to exist of which was subject to predominantly civic considerations. The person, again, an instrument to be used for civic purposes. Christianity revolutionizes the relationship between the individual and society. It's, again, a fundamental game changer. Uh, as Fustel de Coulange pointed out in his classic study, Christianity broke the absolute empire of the city over the individual. The state could no longer claim a final authority over the conscience of man. To obey Caesar is no longer the same thing as to obey God. Indeed, by virtue of his transtemporal destiny, the human person transcends the body politic, and the first duty of life no longer consisted of giving one's time and one's strength to the state. Politics no longer absorbs the whole of man. All virtues are no longer absorbed in patriotism. At the same time, in Christian revelation, the individual human person, as a being created in the image of God, united to God through the incarnation and called to eternal participation in the life of the persons of the Holy Trinity, received anew in what Pope John Paul described as an almost divine dignity. At the same time, freedom emerges as a defining feature of human nature and of human dignity. In St. Augustine's classic formulation, though God created us without our consent, he will not save us without our consent. Now, individuals are more than instruments to be used for civic purposes, as Christopher Dawson writes, now every man, even the poorest and the weakest, only belonged in part to the state. His personality was free and possessed an absolute value, which was incomparably greater than anything in the economic or the political order. Fair enough? So we have these two principles, freedom of the church, dignity or sacredness of the individual human person. These principles, these principles issue in a far-reaching revolution in political life, a far-reaching revolution in human social life. As Ratzinger notes, they call into question the whole concept of society as it was understood in classical antiquity. And at the heart of this revolution, was a dramatic relativization of the state's claims. 
and a dramatic diminution in both its ontological dignity and its role in the overall economy of social life. No longer could the state be understood as the center of social gravity, as it were. No longer could it be the unchallenged ruler of the social universe. No longer could it be the ultimate locus of human fulfillment or the authoritative interpreter of the ultimate meaning of human existence. No longer could individuals be um, seen as mere parts of society, as mere cells, inter largely interchangeable cells, in the social body. In short, what I'm driving at is this. The freedom of the church and the dignity of the human person converge to demand the taming of the state, the taming of Leviathan. They converge to demand the establishment of a new kind of state, a state purged of the monistic and collectivistic and absolutistic um, aspects of the state of classical antiquity. Okay? They demand a political, the Christian revolution in human self-understanding demands a revolution in the ordering of human life in society. This, this revolution fundamentally transformed Western political life, and it gave, it really laid the groundwork for Western, uh, for Western liberty. As the renowned historian Francis Oakley remarked, Christianity issued in something almost totally unprecedented and the appearance of something new in the history of mankind, a society in which the state is stripped of its age-old religious aura and its claims are balanced and curtailed by the claims of a rival authority, a society distinguished therefore by an established institutional dualism, two there are, and racked by the internal tensions resulting therefrom. It is in the transformation wrought by this idea of the freedom of the church that we encounter one of the most important sources of the Western ideal of constitutionally limited government. The duality of spiritual and secular authorities place practical and theoretical limitations on the powers of each, assuring that neither could command the total allegiance of any subject. At the same time, the effort to draw the line between the spheres of these two authorities ultimately leads to the idea of limited government. The state and its organs come to have limited powers because they have limited goals and functions. At the same time, it is in the impact of, Western, of Christianity on Western man's self-understanding that we encounter the source of Western culture's celebration of the dignity, worth, and value of the individual human person. The profoundest and most wide-ranging minds of Greece and Rome, as Alexis de Tocqueville wrote, never managed to grasp the very general but very simple conception of the likeness of all men and of the equal right of all at birth to liberty. Their minds roamed free in all directions but were blinkered here. Jesus Christ had to come down to earth to make all members of the human race understand that they were naturally similar and equal. Likewise, as Brian Tierney, some of you are reading his, one of his books for Dr. Lucky's class, I'm thinking his famous study on the origin of Western thinking about natural rights. As Tierney points out in that study, it's no accident 
that the Western, that, that the idea of natural rights inherent in the person by virtue of their dignity grew up in a Christian culture, in a culture in which individual human beings were seen as the children of a caring God. Something similar might well be said about Western culture's insistence that freedom and, human, freedom and equality are defining features of a rightly ordered society. So it suggests that in this revolution in human self-understanding set in motion by Christianity, we see the roots of the Western tradition of liberty. We see the roots of the efforts to, turn the, to tame the state that looms so large in Western political history and of the liberal tradition in Western politics through which this project of taming the state has received expression with its commitment to the ideal of government that is limited in its scope, subject in its operations to the rule of law, responsible to those it governs and dedicated to the protection of the rights of the human person and the rights of civil society. Fair enough? As a, one more point on this front and then we'll move on. As a practical matter, it turns out, taming the state has proven to be a very messy, very difficult business. It seems that in practice states, even avowedly Christian states, are difficult to tame, are difficult to tame. States have a pronounced tendency to seek to absorb not just the church, but all of human life in themselves. It, it turns out that not only has Caesar proven reluctant to renounce his claims to divinity, but he has remained a very jealous God. And the fact is that since the earliest days of Christianity, the church's claim to freedom in the face of the state has been a source of constant conflict. And that freedom has not been something voluntarily ceded by the state, but something that has had to be repeatedly won at a very high cost. Fair enough? That's kind of part one of what I wanted to say. The second part of what I wanted to say concerns kind of not classical antiquity and the impact of Christianity on Western civilization. It concerns the modern world, the world you and I very much live in, the world of what I'll call liberal modernity. The, the, project of taming, the project of taming the state did not disappear with the dawn of modern times. Um, that, that project continued to be alive in various ways. Indeed, liberal modernity um, has invented a new form of government. We tend to call it liberal democracy, happily or unhappily. We describe it as liberal democracy. It's a form of government whose whole purpose is to, in my language, tame the state. It's a vision of government informed by institutions and practices like separation of powers, um, the rule of law, checks and balances, an independent judiciary um, charged with the enforcement of an array of individual rights, collectively designed to accomplish this goal of taming the state. So looked at from one angle, Liberal modernity can be considered as consistent with the Christian tradition, as a continuation 
of this project set in motion by Christianity, this project of taming the state. But when looked at more carefully, you can see there are, to put it mildly, some tensions between what we might call liberal modernity and the Christian understanding of man and society. If, if liberal modernity carried on, attempted to carry on this project of taming the state launched by Christianity, from the very beginning, it broke in subtle but significant ways with the Christian tradition. And as time went on, inexorably moved away from that tradition, inexorably moved in a very different direction. It did so, it did so under the impact, it did so under the impact of a in revolutionary intellectual movement whose core commitments were in conflict with the Christian tradition, even if that, the extent of that conflict might not have been clear from the beginning. The movement in question, the Enlightenment. The movement in question, the, the Enlightenment. The, the inner dynamism of Enlightenment rationalism pushed liberal modernity toward an ever more radical individualism, pushed liberal modernity towards an ever more doctrinaire secularism, pushed liberal modernity towards a fundamental rejection of Christianity and the Christian um, tradition. Liberal modernity insisted that the values which propel this quest for freedom whatever role Christianity might have played in kind of calling them to mind, are in fact a human achievement and a human possession. Now that liberal modernity has appeared, Christianity can simply disappear. Its assistance is no longer needed in bringing freedom and justice to the world. Um, the, at the heart, liberal modernity flowing from this Vision, new vision of society, it is the rejection of the dualistic vision of social life that had emerged from the Christian tradition. Liberal modernity insists that the only sovereign spiritual authority is the conscience of the naturally autonomous individual. It reduced religion to, to at best a private and personal matter, irrelevant to the affairs of the city and to be systematically excluded from public life. It, off, it ultimately offers a vision of society that is monist in its structure and secularistic in, in its substance. Um, the, the, the quest for freedom, the project of taming the state, is now to be carried on on a purely secular basis and in a social environment from which religion is to be systematically excluded. And the liberal tradition originating, finding its ultimate roots in the Christian tradition, now becomes an expression of what George Weigel likes to call politics without God, an expression, if you will, of political atheism. You can certainly see that in the world of contemporary um, democratic theory and in the world of contemporary um, liberal theory. Fair enough? Now, now anyone who's concerned about the fate of freedom in the world has to acknowledge a certain debt to liberal modernity. There have been very real and very valid values advanced under its auspices. There have been very real achievements 
under its auspices. But acknowledging these achievements doesn't resolve the question of whether the modern experiment of carrying on this project of taming the state on a purely secular basis has been successful. To tackle that question, let us just kind of briefly take a look. Well, I guess it can, we'll start with contemporary political history. Can you take a quick look at contemporary political history? You can see to begin with why somebody might be optimistic about this project, why somebody might think that this project is um, very successful. I, I have a colleague who called me earlier today who I constantly argue with because he's convinced of that fact. Um, what, what, what in this context, one thinks of the fact that today liberal democracy is the world's reigning political ideal. One thinks of the fact that even the world's most brutal dictatorships want to wrap, wrap themselves in the mantle of liberal democracy and pretend to be exemplars of that form of government and its values. Uh, one thinks in this context of the spread of liberal democracy after the Second World War, and in particular what political scientists call the third wave of democratization that began in the late 1970s. Scholars like Samuel Huntington have pointed out that, well, just two centuries ago, the globe was home to one country that might be plausibly called a liberal democracy. That would be us. And while a hundred years ago, you could count the number of countries that might plausibly be called liberal democracy on the fingers of one hand, by 1975, that number had grown to 30. And by the year 2005, when Huntington wrote his book, had expanded to 120 countries. No accident against this backdrop, but you have people like Francis Fukuyama, who some of you may remember, he made a big splash with the book, The End of History. You have people like Fukuyama complaining that liberal democracy represents mankind's future, that it swept away its competitors, that it's now universally acknowledged as the only legitimate political um, form. So against this backdrop, someone might say, hey, it looks like this modern project, again, the project of taming the state on a purely secular basis, has been successful. But what I want to suggest is that when we look a little more closely, doubts begin to arise. One could well wonder whether these, all these new democracies will endure. As a matter of fact, there's now a literature suggesting that democracy is beginning to retreat. The wave is going in the other direction. Indeed, in this context, one could point out that liberal democracy has historically proven to be a rare and fragile form of government. And that, as innumerable, as innumerable commentators have pointed out, this is at least in part because it depends for its vitality and ultimately even its very viability on a complex set of social, cultural, political, and economic preconditions that are very difficult to maintain that are very difficult um, to maintain. One, one might also want to point out that, that several points earlier in this century, it was widely believed that liberal democracy had no future. In the 1930s, the wave of the future, it was almost universally agreed with some type of fascism. In, but in the 1970s and 60s, the wave of the future was some sort of Marxist-Leninist um, state. Likewise, one might point out that today many astute commentators in America and Europe 
Um, commentators, by the way, of a variety of political persuasions are claiming that we're witnessing today the gradual erosion of the prerequisites, the preconditions on which liberal democracy depends for its health. As I was working on this talk on Friday, I checked out the Wall Street, took a break, checked out the Wall Street Journal. There's a long article about the renowned classical scholar, D Donald Kagan. It's about the future of democracy and Kagan's fears that modern democracy has had, it de had its day. Point is the fact that liberal democracy has spread dramatically over the past hundred years doesn't mean that, that it will endure in the place it's, it's been established, doesn't mean it will continue to spread elsewhere. Furthermore, one might argue that just as it's no accident that liberal democracy emerged on the soil of what had once been Christendom, so the dy dynamism ultimately driving it, its advance is the cultural capital generated by Christianity, and that even modern secular democratic thought draws upon this cultural capital. As my witness in this regard, I will call Jürgen Habermas, who some of you may know, the renowned German philosopher, renowned for, among other things, his atheism. He, he says the following, Christianity has functioned, by, by the way, you're dealing with a German philosopher here, so there's going to be a lot of jargon. Um, Christianity has functioned for the normative self-understanding of modernity as more than a mere precursor or catalyst. Egalitarian universalism from which sprang the ideas of freedom and solidarity, of individual autonomy and emancipation, of, the, of the rights of individual conscience, human rights and democracy, is the direct heir to the Christian ethic of love. This legacy, he continues, has been the object of continual critical appropriation and interpretation. To this day, there is no alternative to it. We continue to draw on the substance of this heritage. Everything else is just idle, postmodern chatter. Okay? The viability, Christianity, this democratic revolution is ultimately a result of the cultural revolution generated by Christianity, he suggests, and will remain viable only so long as that cultural capital that Christianity um, produced continues to exist. Likewise, moving from there, one could read the history of modern times very differently. Here's where we go to Bertrand de Juvenal, um, the great, again, great French political theorist who Dr. Lucky wrote his dissertation on. I can remember being there in a cafeteria at St. John's as you finished the last sentence of your dissertation. So, on a yellow legal pad, maybe it was a white legal pad, but on a legal, the old-fashioned way, folks. So, or as I think of them, the good old days, so every time my computer crashes. Uh, but in any case, Juvenal argues that the standard accounts of Western, modern Western political history simply get it wrong. The story of modern Western political history isn't the story of the liberation of the individual from arbitrary despotic governments and oppressive institutions. It's not the story of the triumph of individual freedom. Instead, it is the story of the growth of government, the relentless expansion of the political state. While state power has had its ups and downs, says Juvenal, the broad trajectory of Western history 
shows that from the time of the, Europe's fragmentation to sovereign states, there has been an almost uninterrupted growth of government, government, governmental power, an ever-growing concentration of forces in the hands of the state, which disposes as the centuries go on of ever-ampler resources, claim over the community ever-wider rights, and tolerates ever-less authority existing outside of itself. The relentless growth of the state, its instruments, its revenues, its personnel, its regulations, that is the story of modern times. It's no accident that political modernity begins with what? Absolute monarchy, div the divine right of kings. It's true, Juvenal argues, Juvenal acknowledges that the ideal of limited government and individual liberty have continued to exist in the modern West and have brought forth many efforts to restrain state power. The greatest of these efforts, of course, modern democracy. The source of modern democracy's appeal, he says, has been its claim to, to be able to civilize and domesticate the state. Um, to have found a way of checking and directing of governmental power, to subordinate government to law, to subordinate government to liberty. In reality, says Juvenal, though, if modern democracy has succeeded in, to some degree in, checking, in civilizing state power and making it gentler, it has certainly not succeeded in checking its relentless expansion. That the coming of modern democracy concludes has issued not so much in the taming of the state as in the conveyance of state power to new owners. Theoretically, those owners being, of course, the people. In actuality, those owners being the interests and political elites that are most adept at manipulating the, the levers of um, political power. And where is this leading us, says Juvenal? It is leading us into what he calls the social protectorate, an omnicompetent state that will watch over everyone from cradle to grave and take over the whole business of public and private happiness in the process of absorbing all the resources and energies of society to do all the state must be lord of all. And as far as society is concerned, the state will end up as its poor box, housing authority, and God. Now, Juvenal's account might seem a little overruled. His concerns might seem a little on the hysterical side or the overly dramatic side, but I'd ask you to consider the following facts. To begin with, is he not factually accurate? Okay, that the overall trend of modern history has been towards the enhancement of state power. That even a modern liberal democratic state disposes of a far larger portion of the community's resources, commands an immensely larger bureaucracy, and provides for a far more comprehensive scheme of law and regulation than even the absolutist regimes of early modern times ever dreamt of doing, ever imagined being able to do. Secondly, I would remind you of the fact that the 20th century was the century of two world wars. It was the century of the Holocaust, the gulag, the killing fields. How many hundreds of millions of human beings have died at the hands of the modern state or in its wars? And has the 20th century, did not the 20th century issue in a new kind of state? the totalitarian state which combined the ruthlessness of history's most brutal tyrants 
with the power of modern technology. Third thing I'd call your attention to in this regard is the famous forebodings of Alexis de Tocqueville in the closing chapters of Democracy in America. Here, as you may recall, Tocqueville warns us about a new species of oppression that threatens us in the age of democracy. A new type of oppression whose hallmarks would be its gentleness on the one hand, but its all-encompassing character on the other. More extensive, he says, but milder than the despotisms of the past, it would degrade men rather than torment them and retain the external forms of freedom while abandoning freedom substance. Like so many others, I can't resist here quoting Tocqueville at length. You'll have to excuse me, but I just love this passage. He's trying to envision this new type of oppression we should be worrying about. He says the following. I see an innumerable crowd of similar and equal men who spin around restlessly in order to gain the small and vulgar pleasures with which they fill their souls. Each one of them withdrawn apart is like a stranger to the rest. His children and his particular friends form for him the entire world. As for the remainder of his fellow citizens, he's next to them, but he does not see them. He touches them, but never feels them. He exists only in himself and for himself alone. Among these men arises an immense and tutelary power that alone takes charge of assuring their enjoyment and looking after their faith. It is absolute, detailed, regular, far-sighted, and mild. It would resemble paternal power if, like that, it, has a, it had as its goal to prepare men for manhood. But on the contrary, it seeks only to fix them irrevocably in childhood. It likes the citizens to enjoy themselves, providing they think of nothing more but enjoying themselves. It works willingly for their happiness, but wants to be the agent and arbiter of it. It attends to their security, provides for their needs, facilitates their pleasures, conducts their affairs, and directs their industry. After having taken each individual in its powerful hands, the sovereign power then covers the surface of society with a network of small, complicated, minute, and uniform rules which the most original minds and the most vigorous souls cannot break through to, to go beyond the crowd. It does not break wills, but softens them, bends them, and directs them. It rarely enforces action, but it constantly opposes action. It does not destroy, it prevents birth. It does not tyrannize, it hinders, represses, enervates, extinguishes, stupefi and stupefies until it reduces each nation to nothing more than a flock of timid and industrious animals of which government isn't. The it is the shepherd. Th that's our Tocqueville passage. Far from culminating in a new world of liberty, Tocqueville worries that the world of modern democracy is on the road to this new form of servitude, the servitude of the omnicompetent nanny state, or if we want to be kind of wax more philosophical, the universal homogenous administrative state. Well, this omnicompetent, well-meaning, but enervating, stultifying government that diminishes the people who are subject to it. This government presides over a world of atomized consumers. 
I've been teaching democracy in America, at least some portions of it, every semester for about 20 years. And I've never had a class that when they heard that passage did not say almost in unison, hold on, that's us. That's what's happening. I've never I had that happen just last week. I had a student interrupt this by saying, but that's us. And I'm exactly right. You got the point. They got the point. What Tocqueville describes there jives with their experience, with what they see as the drift of the world that surrounds them. Let's go back to the question I raised a few minutes ago. Has the modern experiment, the experiment of seeking to carry on the quest for freedom launched by Christianity, the effort to tame the state set in motion by Christianity on a purely secular foundation, has this quest succeeded? The verdict of history, I would suggest, is at best ambiguous. Okay, And my own inclination against this background is to say that it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that the modern quest for freedom is in serious trouble. Is in ser Against this backdrop, it would seem to be in serious difficulty. Fair enough? So how is this modern experiment doing? I would suggest, my argument at least would be, it's not doing well. Next point, okay? It might be objected that the fact that the modern experiment has not yet succeeded or isn't succeeding right now doesn't mean at some point it might not do so. A after all, um, you know, after all, man's initial efforts at flight failed. Eventually, he figured it out. The fact that some people failed didn't mean that what the Wright brothers were undertaking was impossible. Okay? Now, I can't prove that kind of liberal modernity's political experiment is impossible. You can't really prove a negative. But what I want to suggest by way of some concluding comments okay, is that there are serious reasons for doubting that the project of the state can be successfully carried forward on a purely secular basis and in a social universe from which religion has been systematically removed. It, it part my doubt stemmed from the intellectual climate of late modernity. It's true, of course, that in principle the affirmations and values on which liberal democracy rests can be articulated and defended on purely philosophical grounds. There's no need to appeal to some divine revelation. What one wonders is a practical matter, however, just how much cultural traction such an effort could, can get. A satisfactory account of the moral and intellectual foundations of liberal democracy, after all, would necessarily involve an appeal to a metaphysical and moral realism at odds with the skeptical and relativistic character of our increasingly post-metaphysical um, intellectual climate. In part, my doubts are historical and sociological in nature. To begin with, as John Courtney Murray suggests, the profound moral confusion of contemporary Western culture would seem to discredit liberal modernity's naive assumption that the moral consensus on which society depends for its stability can be sustained and mobilized simply in terms of a fortunate coincidence of individual judgments apart from all reference to a visibly constituted spiritual authority. Um, it's hard to imagine 
a nation of philosophers. Okay, hard to imagine a nation of philosophers, much less a nation of good philosophers. Um, likewise, there is the historical linkage between religion and morality, and thus between religion and the moral principles that are the charter of a free society. We remember here Washington's farewell address, of course. Unlike my students, I suspect that most of you guys have had a chance to read that. Washington warns us that we must indulge with caution the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion because whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in the exclusion of religious principle. Insofar as morality is a necessary spring of free government, he says, it follows that religion is indispensable to such government. One also thinks in this context of Tocqueville's insistence that religion is necessary not only to cultivate the virtues a democratic regime needs to operate, that's Washington's point, but it's necessary in an even more fundamental sense to, to provide the spiritual dynamism of such a society, um, to provide the vision of the greatness of the human person and the, the nobility of the human person, um, which ultimately drives the human quest for freedom. Likewise, there's the whole problem of successfully institutionalizing limited government. The state has always resisted, and today continues to resist taming. T today, even in the world of secular democratic theory, it's almost universally acknowledged that, among other things, successfully taming the state requires the existence of what in the literature is called civil society, a matrix of strong and vibrant non-governmental institutions that can prevent the state from sucking up all the oxygen, that can prevent the state from monopolizing public life, and the allegiance of citizen, the citizenry and which can employ its moral authority to limit and control governmental power. Freedom presupposes a public square with multiple actors. In this world of civil society, I would suggest, religious institutions have a particularly important role. Uh, as the bearers and mediators of the meaning of human existence, they are uniquely equipped to challenge the moral authority of government, to relativize its claims, to insist on its accountability to a standard not of its own making, to resist its efforts to absorb all human life in the polis, and to remind it that man's horizons transcend the world of space and time. Religious institutions, I would suggest, have an indispensable role. Um, in relativizing and constraining state power. Hence, by the way, the unremitting hostility of totalitarian regimes toward them. We've talked about some kind of sociological and historical reasons for why I think this project of liberal modernity is unlikely to succeed. Let, let me just mention that there are theological, as my final point, that there are theological reasons in play here as well. Um, the, first of things the first of these theological reasons concerns the relationship between dualism, limited government, 
and Christian revelation. Joseph Ratzinger has argued that not only does limited government presuppose a dualistic vision of society, but that this dualistic vision in turn presupposes Christianity, affirming that only where the duality of state and church is maintained in some form or another do we find the fundamental prerequisite for freedom and that dualism presupposes the logic of the Christian thing. That, that's his phraseology. He concludes that the modern idea of freedom is the product of a Christian environment. It could not have developed anywhere else. Indeed, one must add that it cannot be separated from this Christian environment and transplanted into any other system. He seems to be suggesting here that the Christian notion of dualism, of diarchy, of what I'm calling the freedom of the church, not only laid the groundwork for Western liberty, but is in fact essential to its maintenance, that it represents not just the source, but the abiding basis of Western liberty. It also seems to suggest that this dualism itself is both unimaginable in theory and unsustainable in practice, absent Christianity, that the endurance of Western liberty presupposes what he calls the logic of Christian revelation. The other theological issue I want to um, raise concerns the relationship, you might say, of faith and reason. Here we, you know, we turn our attention to John Paul's famous encyclical. Again, I can assume you guys have read it. Um, John Paul spoke for the entire Christian tradition in noting that faith doesn't merely open vistas closed to human reason, but it plays an indispensable role in purifying and perfecting human reason itself. In the aftermath of the fall, in short, reason needs the help of faith, the assistance of grace to be itself, to do the work that is proper to it. In this context, John Paul notes that there are, that there are truths, that there are moral principles, that although accessible in theory to human reason, have proven extraordinarily difficult for it to arrive at, independent of divine revelation. He writes, Revelation clearly proposes certain truths which might never have been discovered by reason unaided, although they are not in and of themselves inaccessible to reason. Among these truths he lists human dignity, equality, and freedom. Modern, culture, he's, modern culture's effort to provide a secular foundation for the modern quest for freedom would seem for him to illustrate this point. Modernity's fateful separation of faith and reason issues in a philosophy completely and absolutely independent of the faith. Far from providing a secure foundation for Western liberty, John Paul reminds us, this modern this separation of faith and reason has issued an ever deeper distrust with regard to reason itself, and has ultimately culminated in a nihilism, which obliterates the very ground of human dignity. What the unfolding of modern intellectual history seems to suggest, in short, is that just as unaided human reason failed to arrive at the truths of human dignity, freedom, and equality, so well it may prove incapable of sustaining them. One cannot but think in this context of Nietzsche's warning, that Christian morality could not long survive the rejection of Christian revelation, that 
Apostasy from the Christian faith was, must necessarily be followed by apostasy from Christian morality. By way of conclusion, that really my concluding thought, by way of conclusion, I will boil it down to very simply a sentence. My concern here, sentence or two, I should say. I can never leave it at one sentence as my students would vow. <laughs> On the one hand, Christianity played an absolutely essential role in the rise of Western liberty. And on the other hand, there are serious reasons to wonder about the long-term sustainability of the political revolution set in motion by Christianity in our increasingly secularized, post-Christian, post-metaphysical cultural environment. And I amazingly stayed more or less on time. I never do that in class. So. Uh, I always walk in and say, today we're going to do, and then I never get around to what I said we were going to do, because the preliminaries killed the time. So we have time for questions. Sir? You, as you said within your talk there, so you keep saying that different government types have always shown up. Without Christianity, could a liberal democracy ever arisen? Or is, do you, in your opinion, is it a necessary foundation is some sort of reason? religion that base work is um, caring God and stuff like that. Could liberal, as it, I would, well, they're implicit in your very good question, kind of three or four questions, but one place, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to flatly say no one could ever have invented this ideal of liberal democracy without the aid of Christian revelation. But the historical fact is nobody came up with it until that revelation T you know, took place. And I do tend to think, you know, there, there is that this revelation would be necessary to sustain it. In theory, again, you could imagine a society, uh, well, maybe you couldn't, I don't know. Could you imagine a society based simply on philosophy alone? That, that would be another question that sort of ties in here. Because, again, you could offer a philosophical, a Thomistic, or an Augustinian defense of the core values of liberal democracy. But would that give you the basis for a viable society? Could you really expect that to act as the basis for a social order? Human beings are philosophers. How many individuals can understand those kinds of things or even care very much about those things? Um, I think the glue, or existentially speaking, I think the glue almost has to be re religious in nature. Christopher Dawson, someone who's had a big influence on me. I'm sure a lot of people in here have read Dawson and probably even read him more carefully than I have. But one of his big points is that social orders have their origin in a sacred order. That at the core of a civilization, at the core of a culture, you find always and everywhere some kind of religious vision. And when that religious vision atrophies, when it begins to disappear, the culture eventually begins to implode. So I, I, again, I mean, I think in theory maybe you could say somebody could have come up with a theory of this. Someone could have come up with a philosophical justification independent of Christianity. But nobody did. And even if they did, okay, I don't think that would give you the basis for running a society, for running a culture. You need something more. This gentleman here. Um, so in light as you were saying, Fundamentally, Christian roots of the, the, the idea of human liberty. 
Um, the, the concept so common in modern democracy of the separation of church and state um, and the rejection of the confessional state, even by like, a lot of the modern church understanding, my understanding is anyway, there's this rejection of the confessional state. Is, is that really sustainable, tenable, or do you necessarily need, when there is this Christian basis for liberty, do you need a Christian, explicitly Christian state to maintain that sense of human dignity? Uh, for what it's worth, before I answer your question, I'm going to track in a slightly different direction, picking up on something you said. If I forget to work my way back to your question, pull me back. Um, confessional state, modern Catholic social teaching, what does it actually say? Um, I think modern Catholic social teaching, frankly, punts on that question. You read Dignitatis Humanae, the most kind of definitive teaching on it. It's very clear about certain things. It's very clear on the parameters of religious liberty. When it comes to the issue of a confessional state, what does it do? It largely ducks the question. It says, if hypothetically in a particular society, you know, there could be reasons for confessional state, but even then, you know, these other principles would apply. It doesn't commit itself one way or another. It presents it as a hypothetical. Um, so I, I think Catholic teaching, I mean, I think the gist of the teaching cuts against a confessional state. And I, but, you know, that, that's my argument. I'm not... The church, so um, the, the, the church, I think, leaves that question open. What it's very clear about is even in a confessional state, there's a religious liberty that would belong to all human beings by virtue of their humanity, regardless of their religious persuasion or lack thereof, that government would have to respect, okay, subject to only certain very broad limitations, okay? Um, so that's something just on Catholic social teaching. In terms, do you need a confessional state? I don't know that you need, I, a lot of it depends on what you mean by a confessional state, because the term, there's a vagueness in there. What actually is a confessional state, such I could envision different things being called a confessional state in, in different ways. You need a confessional state. I personally, again, having heads saying I'm not sure exactly what that means, my sense is no, you don't need one in the old sense of the union of throne and altar uh, and, and, and whatnot. But I think what you do need is a confessional society, a society infused with religious values. And you need a government, a body politic, that is at least open, friendly to those values. Okay? So I would argue, my argument, what, I, what I'm arguing here is not for a confessional state that's a you know, separate. I'm arguing, if you will, for a religious society. Although, again, not to complicate life, okay? But you know, there's a body of literature that suggests America, and I'm not talking about today and secularism and an established religion. I think that's true. You know, through most of its history, America did have an established religion. Protestant was, uh, Protestantism was unofficially the, the established religion of the, pub, of, uh, of the American Republic for a very long time. And eventually it was succeeded by secularism for one reason or another. So, uh, But you can, again, the, the American, you look at 19th century American history, you look at the way uh, J John Witte has a very fine book on religious liberty in America. He's a Protestant historian, historian at Emory. And he talks at great length. It, it's not a point that's unique to him. He didn't discover it, but he nicely synthesizes a lot of historical literature. So people like me who aren't historians don't have to go out and try to read that. Um, saves us a lot of time. I've never told that was just permeated. Okay, with sort of an unofficial, semi-established Protestantism that manifested in all sorts of ways. 
you can see very easily the public schools, but all sorts of things, the hospitals, the prisons, the prayers on public occasions and things like that. So I mean, I think that's part of the reason why America's worked as well as it did. I think Tocqueville gets that right, and yeah, that was the glue that held um, America together. But by the way, one passing comment, and then I'll field another question. Um, something that Father Canavan told me, he one of our old, old teachers, he, told, he knew John Courtney Murray very well. And he said that Murray told him in the 1960s that people should stop rejoicing over the collapse of mainline Protestantism in America. That was the thing that had held the country together, and God only knows what's going to come after it, what's going to be the glue that cements us and, and stuff. Yes? Right, inimical to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the, you know, the, the story of decline, things were good through the 19th century, but they started to decline in the 20th century. That whole story of the rise of the good Christian liberal democracy is a story of an assault on the church in many direct ways. At the very least, or best, it's an assault on the public authority of, uh, of the church. And so sometimes, and this comes out very clearly in some ways, You need Protestantism. That's right. We need right the folks I trace my genealogy back to in Huntington's case. Yeah. yeah, right. yeah. And um, so that's and Okay. Um, I would disagree with almost nothing you have said there. Just let me add a couple kind of comments uh, around the edges. Obviously, I couldn't do justice in a brief lecture of the whole story of the genealogy of modern liberal democracy. Among other reasons, that genealogy would be very complicated. But it is true that modern liberal democracy was born, was, decisive, was influenced not only by the Enlightenment, uh, okay, even if by more conservative forms of the Enlightenment than what you got on the continent. But it was also in profoundly influenced by 
Protestantism. So the, 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 even the good liberal democracy of, say, the American founding, if you want to view it that way, give us an example of a good, quote-unquote, good liberal democracy, still strongly colored by Protestantism, still strongly colored by the Enlightenment. I agree with that, and that might explain, again, what, something I tried to allude to briefly but I couldn't develop, given where modern liberal democratic theory started, you necessarily finished up where we did. That modern liberal democratic theory was flawed to some degree from the get-go. To use a phrase from Murray, you normally, and you know, Murray recognized that. When he, you know, he says, the seeds of dissolution were present from the beginning. I think that's a verbatim quote from chapter two of We Hold These Truths. Yes, it was rooted in Christianity and whatnot, but it was rooted in a form of Christianity that was somewhat adulterated and historically unstable and destined to decompose. So I, I wouldn't disagree with anything you, you said, but I'd still maintain that in the, and I certainly as a Catholic hold to a more robust conception of the Christian tradition, but I would still insist that at the beginning of modern liberal democracy, while there was some conflict, um, th there was also a lot of continuity. The problem is there were cracks in the foundation. There was an individualism, a voluntarism in play that ultimately was going to bring the thing down. So I'm, I'm not sure if we disagree at all or not, so really, because I, I can't find much of what you said to disagree about that. Would need, a full account of this would need to explore all that. Yeah, just to follow that up a little bit, <clears throat> we have to uh, break it down, break it down. Um, it's a joke. Okay. Uh, we break it down because there are different types of Protestantism, right? right. It's just not Protestantism in general. And some of the types of Protestantism, Protestantism has a lot in common with Catholicism. Right. So, for example, in all the early schools, uh, the Bible was a part of the reading material, the literature, everything else. So people learn those biblical principles, and Catholicism is not opposed to those principles. But on the other hand, Protestantism doesn't have all the other things that Catholicism comes with. It doesn't have the metaphysics, doesn't have the philosophy and everything else. So it's like scripture or nothing. So when things come up that really don't relate to scripture, then nobody knows what to do. It's everything on itself. Right. And it was inherently unstable for that reason. Right. I mean, it, it, you know, it just ultimately could not defend itself or sustain itself. No, I agree completely, completely with that. So, um, I mean, that, that is probably, I, mean, I think, part of the argument you want to make. It, uh, am I suggesting, let me put it this way. Am, what I, am I calling upon us to return to the liberal democracy of the founding fathers? I think that would be an immense advance on what we have today. That would be a huge step forward. But I think that ultimately is inadequate. That is not a solution to our problem because there's a reason we are where we are. Again, there were cracks in the foundation from the beginning, and part of the task would be to provide a more robust theology and philosophy of liberal democracy. The founders are good. They're not quite good enough. There's a need for something better. Okay, there's a need for something better at the end of the day. You know, George Washington, James Madison can only get you so far. Okay. Does liberal democracy attempt to define in, uh, inalienable rights anywhere? 
You mean specify exactly what they are and what not? Not what they are, but where they come from. The, the, well, the, the, the answer is... Without referring to the cultural underpinnings of... Right. Well, in two ways. The Declaration of Independence, of course, just to start there, invokes what? The laws of nature and of nature's God. So there's a religious reference there. It's a religious reference of a decidedly deistic cast. Having said that, when you then kind of look at the American culture of the founding era, remember that's an America coming out of the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening. That's a profoundly religious culture. When you look at like the, the, at, you know, Perry Miller, the great historian of American Puritanism, said Amer early American history had been destroyed by an obtuse secularism. We can't study it properly because we can't overcome our prejudices. An adequate account of kind of thinking of the founding era would have to incorporate the religious dimension. I mean, this was a fervently Protestant country that understood itself, and that Protestantism was very central to the country's self-understanding. So if you look more broadly, not just the language of the Declaration of Independence, where, are, where do we get these rights from? Where do we get the moral vision out of which these rights emerge? The answer in the founding generation almost universally held, never universally, you know, but almost universally, reason on one hand and revelation get us to the same place. And you can see that if you look at the political sermons of the founding era that Ellis Sandoz um, collected, that emerges as one of the huge, huge themes. We tend to look only at the secular literature of the American Revolution, the secular literature of the Constitution and Federalist period. But the, they were religious societies. You have to look at the religious literature as well. You have to look at those sermons and, the, um, and whatnot and their impact on the culture. So did that sort of answer the question? Because, okay, I don't remember the original question, honestly, but I hope I got it somewhere in there. So I tried to trace my mind back where Let I began. Let me change the question. Okay, so I think I answered it. So yeah, but take another one. So you'd certainly take another one if you want. Anyone else? Sir? Um, so you, you were saying that uh, in classical antiquity, say like Greece and Paulus, um, that it was a very monistic sort of state with God and everything sort of society. Um, how did they square that again? And this could just be a lack of historical thing, my word, but how did they square that monism with like the most direct democracy in the history of the world? Like how, how did that, it would seem that there is a lot of liberty maybe inherent in that. I didn't think it lack of historical. Okay, no, that, that, that is a really good question. How do we, if ancient civilization was, as I describe it, monistic and collectivistic, how do we explain that ancient Athens was the birthplace of democracy? Well, then there are a couple things that need to get said there. I'm trying to get them in some sort of order here. Starting point is don't assume that they meant by democracy what we mean by democracy. When we talk about democracy, we generally mean liberal democracy. I don't like that <coughs> phrase for various reasons, but that's kind of the, the, the language we use. Liberal democracy is a system that is committed to majority rule, but it's not simply committed to untrammeled majoritarianism. The majority runs the show. It's committed to other values like constitutionalism, rule of law, limited government, natural rights. So it seeks to combine majority rule with these other things. The classical world 
understood democracy to mean basically untrammeled majoritarianism. Without it wasn't what we mean by it. It wasn't what we mean by it for the very reason that they did not have this notion of the dignity, worth, and value of each and every human person. You look at Athenian democracy, it had that character, kind of untrammeled majoritarianism, but also something else. Who was equal here? Who got a say in writing the laws? Only the citizens. Well, not everyone got to be a citizen. It's not simply, obviously, women weren't citizens, but slaves weren't citizen. citizens. It was a culture built on the foundation of slavery. Resident aliens weren't citizens. Turns out only a tiny portion of Athens' population qualified as the citizens who got to participate in the government. And that's another consideration that fundamentally makes classical democracy different from what we mean by it. That's like, I, I mean, I really don't see, you commonly hear that's in Athens, the birthplace of democracy. I think that is misleading because I think what they meant by democracy, what we mean fundamentally different. To get at what we mean by democracy, there has to be a lot of intellectual and moral water under the bridge. You gotta move a long way from kind of the presuppositions of classical civilization. So does that, that get at things? 